0: I felt warm and clammy in the hospital bed and tried to shift my body position, left to right and then right to left, trying to breathe slowly and just honestly praying that I will dilate more. I changed my position to even being on my hands and my feet and tried to talk to my daughter in my womb, encouraging her to move down the birth canal. I remember looking up at the fetal heart rate monitor and tachometer as a physician and seeing the fetal decelerations. And then, as a mother, thinking, I hope my baby is okay.
1: Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alobi Patel. We are the Female Pain Docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle
0: modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary.
1: Welcome to part one of the season finale of season one of The Hurt. So we are so excited to be wrapping up season one, and we really hope you've enjoyed the season so far. So we discussed a lot about pain and anesthesia-related topics this season, and we appreciate getting your feedback as we prepare for Season 2. So today, we'll be interviewing Dr. P to discuss her birth story and life as a working mom. We're excited to share more about each of us in these two episodes that are coming up next. So these are unfiltered and raw conversations of our lives, and we hope to connect with many of you who may be experiencing similar situations in your life. That is ultimately our goal with our Female Pain Docs platform. So let's get to it. Hello, Dr. P. Hello, Dr. K. Okay, so this is going to feel a little weird at first, I'm sure, since we already know a lot about each other. But, you know, are you ready to share parts of your personal experience with the rest of the world?
0: Well, I mean, if you put it that way, no, I'm just kidding, actually. Yes, I am. And as you know, I'm a fairly private person, but doing the female pain docs and being on social media has actually encouraged me to open up and connect with other people who may be going through similar experiences. Motherhood is a, is a shared journey, shared joys, and even shared pains. I've really felt like social media in a way has helped me also heal in ways that I didn't even know that I had to. Like being a working mom during the peak of the pandemic last spring really took an emotional toll on me, but being able to discuss it on social media with other people who went through something similar really helped me acknowledge our shared experiences and really heal from them. So I guess social media is weird in that way, right? But it can definitely be a powerful tool. So I hope sharing my story and experiences here will also help other moms.
1: So you're absolutely right. I look forward to our conversation and I really hope that we can kind of help put at ease some of the fears that our own patients may feel. So before we start, I do want to break down some of the words you used in the beginning for our listeners, and also words that I'm sure you know we'll be using while discussing labor and delivery processes. So in general, when a patient is admitted for a labor and delivery process, they'll likely have an IV, which is an intravenous line that's placed, and be hooked up to two monitors. So one is to measure the baby's heart rate, called a fetal heart rate monitor, and the other to measure the strength of the uterine contractions. And this is called a tachometer, which, as you mentioned, you were looking at during your labor process. You know, I'm sure that must have been tough to kind of know what's going on around you as a physician, but now, you know, you're also a patient. So how did did that feel for you?
0: Yes, it actually definitely really was. And I tried to keep as calm as possible And throughout my pregnancy, I actually played a bhajan, like, you know, a Hindu hymn or song to my daughter in the womb. And I tried to do the same thing during the labor process. My husband and I put our phones on silent and kept the room quiet and played the bhajan in the background. And I really just tried to Zen and meditate and keep myself calm, even though I knew she had a category two tracing for most of my time in labor. And I knew stress would not help that. So I really tried to get out of that physician sort of mind and know that I had an excellent team of physicians and nurses taking care of me. And actually, I chose to deliver in the same hospital that I work in. So that also brought me peace to know that I knew many of the nurses and the physicians on the L&D floor, as well as the entire anesthesiology team who I trusted with myself and my baby. Yeah, I'm so happy to hear that you
1: chose your own hospital. I feel like when, you know, a physician chooses their own hospital, it's really a testament to our patients that we trust our colleagues and our healthcare system. And, you know, I want to go back to what you mentioned before, just kind of for our listeners, you mentioned category two tracings. So I do want to break that down for our listeners, um, just so they kind of have a better idea of what you were going through. So there are generally three types of fetal heart rate tracings, and a category one tracing means that, you know, everything is going well. The baby's doing fine and has kind of normal ups and downs in the heart rate. Category two is in the middle, where it doesn't necessarily mean that anything bad is going on, but it can be assigned to closely monitor the situation and assess if maybe there needs to be any interventions that need to be done. And then category three tracings are considered abnormal and something that needs to be done really quickly, because that usually means that the baby is kind of being affected inside the uterus, like something is going wrong. So, I can understand your concern seeing a category two tracing versus category one, and kind of thinking about, you know, which direction is this going to go? So, tell us more about how that labor progressed.
0: So, I guess I can start from the beginning to really put it all in perspective. And I mean, I have to say, I was blessed to have a generally smooth pregnancy. I had some nausea during my first trimester, but otherwise, relatively smooth remainder of the pregnancy with some normal aches and pains of pregnancy. I mean, I felt huge at the end of it, but I'm sure if you ask any woman at the end of their third trimester, they're going to say the same thing. But anyway, so my daughter was weighing about 80th percentile or so for intrauterine growth. I was a healthy first-time pregnant mom, and so we made a collaborative decision to pursue induction, which is a technique to help move along labor by using various medications or techniques. And this part was great in the sense that I knew that Friday would be my last day at work when I was 38 weeks and six days. And then I just like relaxed and really took in the fact that I was going to have a baby in my arms soon for the remainder of the weekend. My husband and I just spent quality time together for those last few days. And on Monday, we went into the city with our bags packed. We checked into a hotel, ordered a room service meal to just relax. I had one last follow-up appointment to make sure that my cervix was actually ready to be induced. And this is based on something called the Bishop score, which is a way for the OB to generally assess if the cervix is favorable for induction, as in like how likely is labor going to happen soon and how likely will the labor actually result in a vaginal delivery. So anyways, after checking into the hotel, we went to my OB and she assessed my cervix and I was already almost four centimeters without induction. Wow. Yeah. And it was kind of crazy because she looked at me and was like, do you feel any contractions? And I'm like, no, I don't. And I kind of got excited because I thought, okay, so this is a good sign. And, you know, hoping that labor will move along in a successful sort of way. So anyways, my husband and I, we left the office feeling hopeful and we took a long walk around the city, hoping that maybe I'll be able to push myself into labor essentially um, I didn't, but we went out to a restaurant in the evening and then I ordered an eggplant parm, which – because, you know, some people say that might help with labor induction. And I – had do they? I haven't heard that before. Yeah. So, I mean, I had been doing many of the natural ways to really encourage labor too, like the bouncy ball and raspberry tea and yoga and to really just help encourage move everything along for the last few weeks.
1: You know, it's so interesting that you say that these different um, natural remedies, as you said, you know, I feel like as conventional medicine trained physicians, we often forget that there are some natural remedies that may be helpful. And I'm going to say to our listeners that, you know, always kind of take everything with a grain of salt and always, always, always ask your OB for what's safe and what's not. I find it interesting that you say that you drank raspberry tea because it goes back to our conversation with Alka Joshi. Um, And for those of you who don't know, she's the author of The Henna Artist, who recently invited us to do an IGTV, an Instagram TV Live with her. And we talked about Lakshmi, the main character in her book, who often implemented herbal remedies for her clients. And then there was this dichotomy of Eastern and Western medicine in her novel, which I know we found fascinating because it really reminded us of, well, you know, our own moms and grandparents, so it is interesting it's cool to see that you implemented that in real life. Yeah,
0: right? It's definitely like I do believe there is a role for some of the natural treatments uh in general. I mean, we're both South Asian and just look around us now, turmeric is a thing, right? Like we grew up being force-fed turmeric, but you know, now and that's just in general because most Indian meals contain turmeric, but we really didn't know the health benefits and It was mostly cultural wisdom that was passed down, and our parents knew it offered benefits like decreasing inflammation. But now in conventional medicine, even, we can finally understand that there are actual health benefits, scientific sort of benefits um, to some of the natural remedies that we grew up with, including ginger, turmeric, cloves, black pepper, and so much more, right? I mean,
1: absolutely. And it's so funny because you know I used to joke about that or still do with my husband and with other people. Whenever I see like turmeric lattes and turmeric, you know booster shots and things like that that are sold for such high uh, dollar amounts, it's just funny because it's something that we just grew up eating naturally in every single meal. Um, so I'm really enjoying kind of talking to you about that, and I think that's also why I'm really enjoying our current education in lifestyle medicine. So Dr. P and I just for our listeners. We're also getting an additional board certification in lifestyle medicine um, because there are aspects of our own culture that are just mainstream now, including yoga and meditation, and it's really great to see that there are actually scientific reasons for some of the cultural parts of our upbringing. Anyway, so continuing on with your story, so you said you had eggplant farm in the hopes of inducing labor, which I'm sure is also another kind of
0: cultural implementation of a natural technique, so go on. That's actually a really good point. You're right. But yeah, so we finished dinner and we went to bed at like 8 p.m. since my induction time was early in the morning. We woke up around 1 a.m. and headed to the hospital and got checked in for the induction process. And I do want to mention that traditionally no foods or liquids were allowed in the hospital during the labor and delivery process because of the risk of aspiration or basically regurgitation of stomach contents. But depending on each hospital and their policy, there might be different rules for this. So do check with your hospital. And this is because hydration in general has been shown to help laboring mothers, and it doesn't significantly increase their risk of aspiration if it's only clear fluids. So you know, check with the hospital policies whenever you are admitted for the labor and delivery process. So anyways, once I realized my own hospital policy on this, I sent my husband across the street to get some Gatorade and electrolyte-filled drinks as well. And
1: that's a great point. And for those listening, we did discuss more of the anesthesia and regurgitation guidelines in episode six. So if you haven't already, just check that out. But okay,
0: so you got your Gatorade. Yeah, so I got my Gatorade and I stayed hydrated throughout the labor process And, well, once I got checked in, like you mentioned, I got an IV, I was hooked up to the monitors, and we made ourselves comfortable in the room. And we just tried to get in the zone of having a baby. So, I mean, I can go through every little step of the labor process, but I'll really try to keep it short. But the induction process, which includes actually breaking the amniotic sac and starting oxytocin, Started a few hours later, and I got my epidural at the same time, and our OB anesthesia team is awesome. I love them all. And uh, they came in, and they made me comfortable, and now I got to see what it was like to get an epidural versus being on the other side and actually doing the epidural, which actually now I feel like really helps me empathize with the moms um, during the labor and delivery process because I can say that I've had one too. So anyways, I got my epidural and I was very comfortable. And like I said earlier, my husband and I just kind of zenned for the rest of the day. We talked, we watched Game of Thrones because the final season had just started. And, you know, each episode had so much to take in. So we had to watch it a few times. So anyways, we watched Game of Thrones. We just kind of relaxed and listened to music and waited, essentially. And after several hours, they checked me again. And I was about six, six and a half fish sort of centimeters, which was discouraging because, like I said before, I was four almost like 12 or 16 hours before, and I'd really not moved much despite being um, induced. So I was kind of deterred, but I tried to stay positive, and I, you know, this is when I really started watching the monitor and kind of getting antsy when I saw decelerations because I knew, yes, this can be a normal part of the labor and delivery process, but it also was starting to make me anxious.
1: I'm so glad that you kind of mentioned um, having an epidural, both as a physician and as a you know new or about to be mom. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned that because you know it, it's one thing when we kind of talk about it in the sense of we're going to place an epidural and you're going to be fine, but to be on the other side and experience it yourself, you know, it's like another vouch for yes, like an epidural is safe. But going back to what you said about decelerations, so I do want to break that down for our listeners so they have kind of a better idea of what you were going through. So decelerations is a term used to describe when the fetal heart rate goes down. So there are normal cyclical source of variations in fetal heart rate, and this is normal for the most part, but prolonged decelerations or, or even prolonged accelerations, so basically prolonged decreases or increases in heart rate can be a sign that the baby is under stress. So the OB and the anesthesia team watch this really closely, so they always know when to intervene.
0: Yeah, exactly. And as a physician, I had full faith in my OB and my anesthesia team. And I knew knew that no matter what, I am in good hands, and that as long as my baby and I are okay when we go home, that's really all I've really wanted. And in fact, my quote-unquote birth plan literally had three lines on it. I wanted to have skin to skin right away within that golden hour. I wanted to breastfeed my baby as soon as it was allowable. And I can't even remember the third one. I think it was like possibly delayed cord clamping or something. I can't even remember it because it was just, my focus was on being happy and healthy as we left the hospital. But anyway, so I tried to keep all of that in mind as I was watching the D-cells on the monitor. And at some point I remember being on my hands and knees and feeling warm like i was getting a fever and i just like i knew i had a feeling just had a feeling that i would need a c section and that's when my ob actually had come in and she said the words <laughs> and even as a physician who's given anesthesia for tons of c sections i felt upset i felt like i felt like i failed as a mother that somehow having a c section meant that i failed at delivering my daughter Oh, I'm so
1: sorry. that's you know I, I don't want to interrupt you, but you know I just I do want to touch on that because I think you mentioned something that's really important, that sense of failure, like what was happening was your fault or as a result of a failure on your part. I mean, you you knew logically that it's not, but you still felt it, you know, and I, and I want you to go more into that because do you think this is something
0: that a lot of women go through? Oh, absolutely. I think it's so natural to feel that way, even though you know deep down that of course it's not your fault. And of course you're not a bad mother or a failure as a mother or a woman. But I just, I think we as women just have to keep reminding ourselves that and each other that and supporting each other and bringing each other out of those thoughts because, you know, it is what was the safest for for that situation. And, you know, I remember crying and being upset, but I also tried to stay positive as a physician because ultimately I knew that was the safest thing to do for me and for my daughter. And actually one of my good friends from residency was the OB anesthesiologist on that night. And I remember he walked in and I looked at him with a sense of thankfulness and a relief. And I looked at my husband who was also just trying to stay positive and he was trying to make jokes and trying to make me feel better because I think they saw like the feeling of disappointment on my face and To be honest, I still feel like I have moments of guilt and disappointment in myself about not being able to deliver her vaginally, but I remind myself that I am healthy, my baby is healthy, and whether the baby was delivered from an incision in the uterus versus vaginally does not make me any less of a mother, and I hope other women can also feel empowered with that. It's not a sign of failure. Our bodies are amazing for having gone through the process in and of itself. And to be honest, there are medical reasons that a C-section is necessary, and I'm grateful that I was able to have a C-section to safely deliver my baby because her head was quite stuck and she has a big head. But I mean, either way, these types of situations of either due to anatomical reasons for not being able to deliver vaginally or uterus or placenta or like placenta previa, well, They really do require a C-section for both mom and baby's safety. And unfortunately, before these medical advances were made, many mothers died in childbirth because there wasn't the option to have a C-section. So I do want to acknowledge that there is a medical place for it. And I recognize that, even despite my guilt, that it was important that it happened and it allowed both me and my daughter to be safe.
1: That must have been so tough for you. And having been friends with you throughout all this, you know, I can attest to the fact that you're doing great. And, you know, you're right that the route of delivery does not change the type of mother a person is. So I can only imagine how the recovery process for that must have been. You know, and I do want to ask you about that soon. But before I get into that, so I did do some homework since I knew you had a C-section. And so I wanted to discuss some stats that I found and that I hope our conversation can create awareness for other women out there. So the Department of Health and Human Services recently unveiled an action plan to improve maternal health, which included reducing the C-section delivery rate, which is currently at about 30%, but can be up to 60% in certain hospitals, according to the CDC, which is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, I want to remind our listeners that C-sections are often you know, medically necessary, and Dr. RP, you did just mention that, and they are an important way to keep both the baby and the mom safe. But, you know, unfortunately, the United States has a long way to go still in acknowledging our C-section rate and the peripartum complication risk. So the World Health Organization suggests that the ideal rate for C-section birth should actually be 10 to 15 percent. So we hope that creating these conversations and educating our listeners will help you stay safe, but also make medically correct decisions, you know, in conversation with your OB team. And even though we're finally having these conversations, we're still unfortunately really far behind compared to other countries. So we have a long way to go for maternal health, and especially for our fellow Black, Indigenous, and people of color women. And I want to mention that I'm encouraged to finally see a
0: focus on maternal health, including in minorities. You are absolutely right. No matter what happened during my labor and delivery process in terms of me not having a vaginal delivery I am so blessed that my baby and I are safe and we're healthy. And it really pains me to see other women who unfortunately didn't have the same outcomes because of the lack of resources or even awareness. And every time I see a story, it makes me so saddened to see that we have such a long way to go. But I am happy to see a push to take maternal health seriously. And maternal health actually is not just when a woman is pregnant or even during labor, but also after the baby is delivered. And the labor and delivery process does a number on our bodies, regardless of vaginal or C-section, and I feel like we kind of just forget about moms once the baby is out, and there's so many changes that are actually occurring in a woman's body after the delivery that thankfully, actually, I understood because I was a physician, but it can be quite scary if you don't have the awareness for it. And this includes the actual physical trauma of childbirth, as well as the hormonal roller coaster after- And the sudden impact on our circadian rhythms, including sleep and nutrition, it's honestly so much. And to be honest, the more we talk about it, the more I hope other women will feel empowered to speak up if they're having any issues at all.
1: I feel you. I mean, I already feel more empowered to speak up just after talking to you. So I can only imagine for, you know, the rest of our listeners and the amount of times that you do kind of, you're so passionate when you're talking about this. And I like how many women are now acknowledging this as like the fourth trimester, because we really do forget about what the woman's body has gone through once she delivers the baby. And these changes can take months to recover from. You know, I know we want to focus a whole episode on that next season for now. But again, I did look up some stats for postpartum issues. So I'm going to go ahead and share those with all of you. Because I kind of wanted a way to really objectively identify what many of our fellow women may be going through. So childbirth is a risk factor for multiple pelvic floor dysfunctions and musculoskeletal problems. Urinary incontinence, that's a big thing that can happen. Um, And pelvic girdle pain, which as we discussed in earlier episodes, occurs commonly during pregnancy with up to 77% of pregnant women reporting these symptoms. And then, depending on the study, urinary incontinence continues to affect 18 to 60% of women postpartum. I mean, that's a huge range, but you can already tell that it's a significant number of women. And then back pain happens at about 4 to 90% of women after childbirth. Again, that's a huge range. But there are so many mechanical changes that occur after pregnancy that can cause chronic back pain as well. And then there's also sexual health. So sexual penetration pain, so otherwise known as dyspareunia, is reported by about 44.7% of women at three months postpartum and 43.4% of women at six months postpartum, which is you know barely any less. So really, for many months after, women's bodies are still healing from childbirth.
0: I'm so glad you're talking about those numbers. It really does go to show that really the majority of women have some sort of long-term effect of childbirth, whether it's mechanical back pain or pelvic floor muscles. We really do need to focus the conversation on how do we help our bodies heal after all of this. It took 40 weeks to make, grow, and deliver a baby, yet we are expected to look prim and proper for a photo shoot within days. I definitely did not feel that way for sure. I remember looking at myself in the mirror in the hospital and feeling like I'm looking at somebody else. I looked so different. My face was puffy. My eyes were baggy. My hair was a mess and my scar was hurting. I could only wear flip flops because my regular shoes didn't fit. I didn't even know what I I was thinking when I brought flats to the hospital, but thankfully I also brought flip flops, but either way, it was just It was hard to wear the clothes that I thought I would be able to wear, but I did have some extra sort of loose fitted clothes and I was afraid really to wear fitted clothes in general. And I remember the hospital photographer walked in and asked if I wanted to do a photo session. And I looked at her like, uh, no, not, not like this, but this is why it's so important to talk about this, right? Like we went through a lot in these 40 weeks and we need some time to heal and give our bodies time to go back to their normal.
1: Absolutely. You know, I remember when um, Kate Middleton would pose just hours after delivering her children. And I just remember thinking, like, how is that? How is she doing this? Those are really just unrealistic expectations for how a woman's body would heal after birth. So like, kudos to her for being able to do that in the first place. You know, and for some women, I'm sure just walking is really painful. So to kind of expect a mom to just walk out of the hospital with her baby in her arms, it's just not normal expectations. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your recovery process?
0: Uh, Yeah. So actually, thankfully, I had a smooth postpartum recovery in terms of my C-section. Like I I did have normal aches and pains that I took ibuprofen for, but overall, I did feel better day by day. I also had a lot of support from my family, my in-laws, my husband. So thankfully, I had the support to really recover the way I needed to. Um, I do still have some like dysesthesia, which is a weird sensation, really, where the incision is, where my skin was cut. But this is a normal part of nerve healing sometimes. And it's not painful. It's just there. And um, I do want to mention often that people assume that the recovery process is just a physical process, but it's also really a mental and emotional process, too. And for a first-time mom to experience the sudden onset of lack of sleep, crying baby, and just overall the overload and sensory stimulation. And people also giving unsolicited advice, by the way, at every corner, all of that can just be very overwhelming. And to some, it's also a loss of their own identity and independence that they had before. It's just a lot to take in. And mental health is so important because on top of this huge lifestyle impact of having a baby and it affecting all aspects of our life, there are also hormones. Our hormones are such a wreck during this time. For weeks, we had a gradual increase in estrogen and progesterone and other hormones that help the baby grow. And now suddenly within hours and days, there's this huge shift in these hormones. And this can really take a toll on our mental health. And really, unless a woman knows that this is happening, it can be quite a scary and lonely time. I'm
1: so glad that you're sharing your experiences because you know, like you said, mental health is so important. And I feel like a lot of times women feel like they can't speak up about that. So I'm really, really happy that you are. You know, it's so important that women speak up about this. They have conversations to help each other um, speak up about it and then protect themselves because it's worth it. And there are so many types of mood disturbances that can occur in the postpartum period. Again, up to 85% of women experience some sort of mood disturbance. And that could be a whole range of things. You know, there's multiple different kinds of postpartum mood disturbances. It's not just postpartum depression. There's also postpartum blues. Postpartum anxiety, postpartum psychosis. And so, again, you know, we'll have more information on this in future episodes. And a woman may have either one or a combination, really, of those mood disorders. And it can be fatal, too. So, if a woman doesn't know how to find help. So, we really, really sincerely hope that our listeners can feel empowered to recognize mood changes after a baby that would require help. And this can include feelings of, you know, loneliness, hopelessness, guilt. And then even thoughts of harming yourself or others. It's so important to recognize this, that this is due to hormones shifting and not an indication on you being a bad mother. I think that's really important. And so it's okay to ask for help and you really should.
0: That's so true. I remember feeling so lost and confused sometimes. Like as a physician, I knew a lot, but also not enough. And so I would spend hours, like literally hours, just searching information and losing sleep over it and seeing if I'm doing everything just right or am I missing anything. And I would spend time in the middle of the night even in between breastfeeding, just reading journal articles on safe sleep and breastfeeding and other topics, and I would literally lose sleep. And then before I knew it, it would be time to feed the baby again. And I recognized later that these were episodes of anxiety and some of it may have been normal part of just adjusting to motherhood. But to a certain degree, it did just go away after a few months, which meant it could have been hormones, like the hormones were readjusting. But anyways, I recognized once that feeling of constant and overwhelming sort of consuming worry went away. And also after I read something on postpartum anxiety that it finally clicked and I was like, oh yeah, I I remember feeling that way. So anyways, after a few months, I recognized and was able to say, okay, yeah, that was something that I went through, but I didn't know at that time. I was just kind of over, overwhelmed and wondering, am I doing all the right things? But even going back to work and adjusting to being a working mom now, that was a whole other sort of way of acknowledging all of this. And that also kind of threw in a wrench in adapting to motherhood. You know, and that's a
1: lot for you to share with us. So I really appreciate you talking about postpartum anxiety that you experienced yourself. And I know that you're passionate about speaking up about being a working mom. And just based on our friendship, I know how hard it can be sometimes. And there are so many other women that are experiencing this just across the country and the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say that I'm blessed and I'm grateful because I do have so much support. I'm so lucky to have my parents and my in-laws, both of whom live within 40 minutes of us. I have a nanny and I have two amazing sisters. I have mom friends who just kind of get it and I can call them and be like, I don't know what to do about this or ask them for help or whatever it may be. So really there is a whole village of support. And even with that, you can still kind of feel lost in postpartum. And that was one of the reasons that I felt so empowered to speak up because even with me having so much support and so much insight, I had days where I felt like lost and anxious. And I can't even imagine how other moms who didn't have the support or didn't have the knowledge about what was going on in their bodies may have felt. And I really, truly, really do hope that this podcast and the Female Pain Docs platform can really empower these women to speak up and to seek help if you really need it. Even if it's just asking somebody to give you a break so you can go to the other room for five minutes just to like decompress or to go on a walk. Whatever it takes, just please ask for help and don't feel like you have no options.
1: That's great advice. You know, I guess recognizing that there is a problem is the first step. And if we can help moms understand that they may have postpartum mood disorder, then really do speak up and explore their options. That's kind of a great way to start you know, it doesn't have to be just medications. There are other solutions out there and also kind of recognize that this is temporary. So I know you're passionate about breastfeeding as well, and you were very vocal about your journey with breastfeeding. Do you want to talk to us about that?
0: Yeah, for sure. And you know, it's funny that you say that because I wasn't actually vocal when I first started breastfeeding. Like, yes, I had this inherent pressure to be successful and have this, you know, successful sort of breastfeeding bond, but I used to do it very like privately and I feel like it was not right. I felt like it wasn't right to talk about it. And even when I went back to work, it was so difficult to manage to pump every two and a half to three hours while working full time in the operating room or even on my like pain office days. And some days when I was doing my pain days, I would be at three locations in one day and to find the time to pump and store my milk, you know, keep it cool enough to even get home and safe while commuting with multiple bags, all of that was just so stressful. I do not miss that time at all. And on top of all of that, I have to eat properly and hydrate properly so my supply doesn't drop. Like it was just a lot to think about and manage. And I felt like I couldn't talk about the pumping or even like wash my pumping parts in the lounge without feeling shy or ashamed. But then the more I kind of continued on pumping, the more I realized, why am I hiding this? Or why am I feeling ashamed of my breast milk or my pump parts? And by the way, this was all like internal, like nobody ever made me feel uncomfortable about it. It was just kind of like, I felt shy or I felt, you know, that this was not sort of acceptable to do in front of other people. But, you know, I realized after doing this for, for a few months that I should be proud that not only am I working full time, but I'm also like, my body is literally making food for my daughter constantly. And I'm doing everything I can to keep it safe and the machine parts clean. So once I really felt this feeling sort of click, which took a few months of really working full time and getting comfortable with the process of pumping at work, once it really clicked, I was able to, to feel comfortable speaking up about it and feel empowered to speak up. Um, that hey, I'm I'm gonna go pump, or I need a pumping break, or you know, yeah, the, this is this is my breast milk. <laughs> like, please don't touch it, and put it in the corner or something. But um, but no, I I just learned how not to be ashamed of breastfeeding and pumping.
1: And that's such an interesting way to look at it. And uh, Doctor Pete, you did mention that you used a pump at work, and it was wearable, right?
0: Yeah, actually. So um, I wore a pump in my bra, and um. It would sit in my bra and I would be able to literally pump while walking or commuting on the bus or whatever it may be and I could take meetings with it. And it was great because I was able to make it sort of more seamless and not have to like take too much time and I just really got it down to a process of being able to quickly put on my pump do the thing, and then quickly take it off. And all of that became like a seamless process because I wasn't really attached to the wall with um, with an outlet. So anyways, I thought it was great. And I'm very thankful that I had the technology to do that because it allowed me to exclusively breastfeed for about 10 months.
1: That is so cool. You know, I'm glad more tech options are available for women now. It really does show that as women move ahead in these fields, they're also finding innovative ways to help other women.
0: Yeah, for sure. Do you have stats on that since you're finding stats on everything? Well, actually, I do.
1: (laughs) So I'll end by giving some stats regarding women in the workforce. So as of December 2019, women actually make up 50.04% of the U.S. workforce. So actually just slightly more women in the workforce now. And 32% of employed women are working moms, and 23.5 million women have children under the age of 18. And of these women, 66% worked full-time in 2018. And it's well known that women have significant responsibilities outside of work. So, you know, women are working at work, but then also when they get home, whether it's childcare, cleaning, cooking, or being a caregiver in general, they just have a lot of responsibilities. And also, it's now well understood, due to many studies, that mothers are spending significantly more time in the labor force, but also with their children compared to their predecessors. And so are men, by the way, which is great. But in general, we're spending much more time in general at work and with kids, and yet we still only have 24 hours in the day. So I can't even imagine how much more stress this can add on for this generation.
0: Absolutely. You're totally right. And it is a lot of stress and also add on like financial stress to that or the stress of chronic pain as many of our patients have. And now the pandemic, like it's really taken a toll on all of us as humans, but And I've read multiple articles about how working moms especially have been hit significantly harder. The pandemic has disrupted people's lives all around us. But for many working moms, it's a disruption of their livelihood, both mentally and physically. And as well now having to really tend to education or virtual learning. And many women have had to leave the workforce because of this, right? And this has really been difficult for single mothers and especially women of color, So we really do have to do something about it as a country and to find better ways to support the working women out there. And I know steps are being taken to acknowledge the problem, which, like you said earlier, is really the first part of any sort of progress. Uh, The New York Times also uh, had a great article on this a few months ago, and they presented some sort of solutions to this. So I really do hope this is a step in the right direction to really helping women in general.
1: Absolutely. And that's a great point. And it really goes hand in hand with mental health, which is some of what we're going to talk about next week. But also for this entire podcast, we're talking about working moms. You know, that's a big part of a working mom story. And she needs to have her mental health to be able
0: to do all of this and to kind of get through each day. That is absolutely true. And I feel like yeah, exactly like you said. We we working moms and mental health go hand in hand and as women we wear so many hats whether it's being a daughter, wife, sister, friend, physician, whatever it may be. But I feel like we can take one of those hats off like if needed. And I know other moms probably feel this way when I say this, but I can never take off my mom hat. Like I am always thinking about my daughter and that everything I do can affect her. I even actually started eating healthier once she was born and just being healthier overall because I realized I needed to take care of my own health better because if something happens to me, who will take care of her the way her own mother would? So it's really a big part of my identity that's just in general really hard to separate, even at work. Like I'm a physician, but I'm also a mother and I'm juggling the roles of many of these duties and expectations constantly many of which society does not see or even acknowledge because millions of women all around the world, all around the country, they're doing this all the time. They're juggling so much at once and it takes a mental toll. And I think the word I read somewhere was um, the mental load of being a woman and like the invisible labor that women do that others just don't see, whether it's like doing the dishes or picking up the socks or turning off the lights or whatever it may be, just these like sort of. Things that she does throughout the day to keep things together, to keep the day together, keep the family together, whatever it may be, your small, small labors of love, invisible sort of labor tasks. And it just shows that our brains are always on and always going.
1: You know, absolutely. I could totally see that. Like we just kind of think about the world differently sometimes. And there's always something that needs to be done. And I think as women, we just kind of do it like, okay, this needs to be done and you just go ahead and do it. That's an interesting topic to think about. And maybe we can chat about that in a future episode. Um, but for now, do you have anything else you want to add? Because you've been amazing. And I think you gave us a lot of amazing information.
0: And thank you for sharing your entire story with us. No, I think this was a great conversation. Thank you for leading it. I really enjoyed your statistics. And I really do hope we can shed some light on women in general. Mothers are not, we are pretty awesome. <laughs> and I hope we can empower And uplift each other today and every day for all that we do. So I'm very thankful that we were able to do this. I love it. That's a great message. We are
1: awesome. It's a great way to end. (laughs) So thank you for joining us. And next week will be part two of our season finale. And we're going to talk about sexual health, mental health, social stigma, and so much more. So stay tuned and thank you for joining us.
0: We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at
1: www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.